Tap In Time, a Chapman Stick podcast. Whether you've played the instrument for years or are just curious, if it's stick talk you're looking for, this is the place. So come along and stay a while. Hello out there and welcome once again to the Tap In Time podcast. This is episode number 32 and I am Victor. I'm Claire. And I'm Jean. Sometimes to understand where you're going, you have to understand where you've been. These experiences along the way are what matter most, and it's the experience that leads us to a deeper understanding of ourselves and of our music. When it comes to music and the Chapman Stick, it's clear that Michael Kolwitz has had a wonderfully unique and creative journey that has had him at the frontier of writing, recording, and performing for the instrument for over 45 years. As one of the world's most prolific Chapman stick players, Michael continues to create and record music for the instrument at a steady and consistent pace, and we're delighted to have him join us today to talk about his experience and celebrate some news about yet another release. Michael, welcome to Tap in Time. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm, I'm, Good morning. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm you just sound so, far too awake. I'm stoked <laughs> to be here. <laughs> Yeah, you could take the boy out of California, right? But you can never take away the terminology. <laughs> right, dude. <laughs> so, dude. So, Michael, where do, there, there's so many, I have so many questions just because um, in, the, in the time that I've known you, which is like 30 years or so, um, 30, yeah, at least 30 years, um, there, there's been so many recordings. So that will be something that we cover. And we know okay. that you've got like yet another release that we're going to talk about. And we'll have a bunch of questions about Emmett as well, because I know that you had a very close and personal relationship with Emmett and the Chapman family. And you probably still do if you're anything like me, where you kind of grew up in the region and it's this unique opportunity. It was this unique opportunity to be so close to the source. So take us back to the beginning of um, what made you choose music to start with. I grew up in a, a in a household that liked music. My parents listened to Lawrence Welk, Frank Sinatra, um, Arthur Lyman, stuff like that. So I always liked music as a kid. And in fifth grade, I took up the trumpet. And I played the trumpet in school bands for 10 years. Uh, after leaving high school, I worked in a music store for one year. And one day, I was sitting in the back room reading a trade magazine. And I saw one of the very first advertisements for the stick and I just I was intrigued so but this is way before the internet so I had to write a letter send it off and a few weeks later I got a nice letter from Yuda with a uh, they didn't have a brochure yet but they had a, 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 a poor photocopy of an article from a small magazine it was called musician's guide at the time and it was the size of a regular tv guide and I read this letter, and I go, wow, this is different. And synthesizers had just come out, and I was really interested in them. I was a big fan of all the progressive rock bands. Uh, Keith Emerson and ELP was my absolute fave. And, of course, Yes, Rick mm. Wakeman, Genesis. And yeah. we had just got yeah. these synthesizers at the music store. We were the one of the very first Roland dealers in America at the time. But then I found the stick this 
tall, thin guy wearing these beetle glasses. And it was just so mysterious. I fell in <laughs> love with it. And it turned out that Emma was going to play at UC Riverside. I lived in Riverside, California at the time, which was about 70, 75 miles from Emmett. And I went to a concert that he gave. He was a solo opening act. And I sat in the front row and my mouth was just probably hanging open the whole time. I don't know <laughs> if anyone else <laughs> noticed. But Are you sure was, it's not a sitar? Are you sure? I was hypnotized. <laughs> Emmett pr played yeah. pretty loud. He had uh, several amplifiers. He was using all kinds of wild, crazy pedals. And he had echoes going to the left. Then they went to the right. Then they came back to the middle. Then distortion. And, oh, it was just, I was blown away. And he took me out back. And he put the stick on me. And he said, okay, put your hands here, here. And he's, you know, he's kind of looking, going, yeah, you could probably do this. And, well, I was hooked. Um. I don't think I ever touched a trumpet again. I wasn't really a guitarist. I knew maybe five or six chords on an acoustic guitar, but I was just totally in love with the stick. You know, this kind of makes Emmett sound a little bit like a drug dealer, you know? Here, just, just, just try one line and let me know what you think. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Right. He, he had a very unique way of sales. The first 16 bars are on me, buddy. <laughs> the, the, the one thing I'll always remember, the, what he said to me, He's like, well, Gene, I remember he said when I was buying, I think I was buying two Chapman sticks at the same time. He's like, you certainly sound like a man who knows what they want. And I was like, oh, that, that made me feel really good about this That's purchase. That's a good line. You know? Yeah. Exactly. So, so, okay. So you got to meet <laughs> Emmett and then, and then, and then basically you, you evolved from the trumpet, you know, to the, to the Chapman stick. I'm sure that our trumpet player friends won't appreciate that, but you never, oh never man, had Rob to, Gellner, you know, man, we're going to hear from sure him again. Um, so then you, then you, then you stayed in touch with him and, and, uh, and, and how long did it take before that, before you actually got the instrument? Well, he had the instrument for me. I didn't have the money. I told him I wanted to buy an instrument and no matter what I was going to have it, you know, by new year's day, this is, you know, late 1976. And then just out of nowhere, my dad comes up and goes, you know that stick thing? Yeah, go buy one. You know, my dad was from Brooklyn. I'm the son of a plumber. <laughs> and he pulls out a wad of hundreds. Oh, awesome. One, two, three. Yeah, it was 700 bucks at the time. And I immediately, well, of course, thanked him, hugged him. I couldn't believe my good fortune. And I called Yoda and she goes, yes, we have your instrument ready. And I made an appointment to drive into L.A., uh, just a couple of days later, and I had never been to Los Angeles. So how long was it between first seeing Emmett perform and having him strap it on you and you having your hands on your own instrument? How long was that? Mm, probably about five, no more than six months. It was it was the summer okay. that I saw him. I can't remember the, the, the date. It was July, August, so somewhere in there, about a half a year and so I, I, I find his house, and they lived way the heck up in Laurel Canyon. You know, I remember Yoda said, "Turn left at the Canyon Country Store," <laughs> and you go up there, and there's this little tiny one, one lane road through the hill. So if there's a, 
oncoming traffic coming downhill, you have to move out of the way. I finally found the house. It's built right on the side of a hill. There's a big, long staircase, and they had these huge doors. You know, the doors must have been eight, at least eight feet tall. I knock on the door. Emmett answers. And there he is in person. He's like, I felt like I was at the home of a mad scientist. Come in. You were. (laughs) Door creaks. I walk in and, you know, I'm a 19-year-old kid from Riverside. I, I, I didn't know what to expect. And he goes, I have your instrument here. And he opens it up and it was one of the, you know, original Ironwoods. And we made the transaction a little bit of small talk. And he goes, would you like to take a lesson? Well, of course I would. And we went up to his studio. Okay, what do the you lesson, know about it? What do you that's know? That's right. The lesson lasted three hours. When I left the Chapman's house, my head was ready to explode because, you know, I had about a hundred pound head and he just gave me a thousand pounds of information. <laughs> and uh, of course, before going home, they wanted to make sure that, you know, I didn't fall asleep at the wheel. And so they made the famous Chapman brewed coffee, uh, three quarters, U-band fine ground, one quarter espresso. And so I was pretty wired by the time I left. And <laughs> as, as soon as I left there, I'm, I'm driving and I'm looking, the stick is in the seat next to me. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I got one of these things now. Now what? And I'm driving down Sunset Boulevard. And it's just before the on-ramp to the 10 freeway, and I see an Arby's roast beef, and it's almost like I'm in a trance. I just turn into this parking lot. I park and decide I have to go in and take notes. There's no way I'm going to remember all this stuff he just showed me. So I made all these crude drawings. I just wrote as fast as I could, anything I could remember. And I went home, and two days later... I had a roommate at the time, Roger Harp, and Roger's drinking beer and listening to Marshall Tucker Band, and the phone rang. And Roger picks it up and goes, whoa, that was a loud ring. It's Emmett. He goes, hello, this is Emmett Chapman. May I speak to my... Oh, yes, yes, Mr. Chapman. Okay, okay, fine, fine, fine. And Emmett called to apologize for giving me a three-hour lesson. He said he didn't know what came over him, and I guess he wanted, <laughs> he wanted me to know everything all in three hours, and it was it was so nice to hear from him because he's such a kind, gentle man, and uh, he, he felt like a father to me right from day one, and so that was my first day. Wow, day one. Day one. That's... That's a, I never, I've never heard that story. Emmett gave you a phone call to apologize for (laughs) showing you so much. I kid you not. And if I could ever find Roger Harp again, he will confirm that. But it was so nice. (laughs) You know, he asked me, how did the lesson go? I go, wow, you kind of gave me a lot of stuff to work on. I mean, I got a full plate here. But the way lessons worked is I... Because I lived, you know, 70 miles away, it it was an all-day deal. It wasn't like your piano lesson is at 3.30 on Thursday with, you know, Miss Booty. It was kind of every couple of months because it would take me all day to drive in, take the lesson, sit down with the Chapmans at the kitchen table, have coffee, and then drive home. 
and I continued that ritual at Arby's Roast Beef Sandwich on Sunset Boulevard after every single lesson, and I'm so glad I did. Because Free Hands hadn't been published yet. Emmett gave me photocopies of what they had had, and most of it was all done on a manual typewriter with Emmett's uh, drawings of the... Uh, you know, the different fret spaces and fingerings and stuff like that. And I still have the original. And this is, you know, even before Freehands, he's still writing lessons for it. So I was lucky to have that. And he'd always give me plenty to work on. It would take me a, a month or two just to assimilate and absorb everything he gave me. And so I just kept going, going back. For about how long did you take lessons with him? I was a little over 10 years. And then in the mid-80s, Emmett got really busy. He was trying to put out the grid with the MIDI thing. And, you know, we had the Stanley Jordan thing come in. And and then, of course, Tony Levin playing in two monster bands at the same time. And he's taking the stick out. And millions of people are seeing it around the world. So Emmett had his hands full. And I was yeah. doing okay on my own. And we, of course, always stayed in touch. And uh, I'd help him out w- at different trade shows. Uh, we did both of the US festivals in the early 80s, both 82 and 83. And that was something, something to behold. The US festivals, I remember that. Yeah. Uh, tell me, what, what, what is this US festival? I've never. The, the never US festival heard of that. was the massive, like, three day concert that would have just a ton of bands. And it was in the, yeah, the early 80s. And it was kind of a precursor to these other kind of larger, kind of multi band festivals that would span the, the, the course of a whole weekend. It was all the indulgence of the 70s, you know, but oh, more God, organized was, and over the course bad. of a it weekend. Was, The uh, Us Festivals were underwritten by Steve Wozniak, who was uh, Steve Jobs' partner in the early Apple. And he just had a ton of money and wanted to put on, you know, the the next Woodstock-type event. And the uh, lineup was unbelievable. The lineup for the three days were the, the best bands at the time. And it was all booked by Bill Graham, so he knew everybody. And they built the world's largest stage. It was four stories high. And they also built the largest diamond vision screens for each side of the stage. And the US festivals had attendance of, you know, well over 100,000 people it was held at Glen Ellen Regional Park outside San Bernardino. And one of the that, fa- yeah. one of the facets was technology tents. Wozniak would just love technology, believed it was going to change the world, so he invited any maverick inventors at the time, and it really didn't matter what they did, musical or otherwise, to come display what they had in what he called the technology tents. And these are just like the largest, imagine the biggest Christian revival tents you've ever seen, and then double it. That was the size of these tents. And Emmett was just one of the many inventors and thought leaders and influencers at the time that was invited. And so wow. I lived close by, and Emmett said, I need some help. Are you, gonna, are you in? I go, you bet I am. <laughs> 
And uh, so I had special yeah. passes that let me avoid the traffic, which was backed up for like 10 miles. It was unbelievable. And it was the very first year, it was it was 100 degrees, 110. It was so hot and so dusty. And we're in these tents, and they have these enormous fans. Uh, has anyone ever seen the first Total Recall movie with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger? Remember the fans? Well, that's how big they were, and it didn't do anything. It didn't do anything at all. It was just so hot. I, I, I don't know how we didn't have more people faint. So Emmett's playing the stick, and then he meets this guy Simmons, who had just invented the, some of the very first electronic drums. They're kind of octagonal shaped, and all the new wave bands in the 80s had them. So he started jamming with Simmons on his drums. And then next comes a guy named Niall Steiner from Utah. He was a trumpet player who was really good at electronics and synthesizers, and he developed the first electronic wind instrument, which he later sold to, uh, I think it was Yamaha, and they called it the Lyricon. Well, it's kind of played like a clarinet, but it's a controller for a synthesizer. Well, so Niall Steiner comes in. So here's three inventors jamming on the instruments they had all invented. And I'm standing there and I'm just thinking to myself, oh, my God, I'm in the presence of giants. And I had the thought that, oh, wow, I don't think this could get any better. I look to my left. I'm standing next to Robert Moog, the inventor of the synthesizers. <laughs> I'm just thinking, oh, my God. So I started chatting with him, and he's just the nicest guy. He knew all about the stick. He thought it was just incredibly innovative. He thought it was wonderful. He thought Emmett was a genius. So we're just chatting like old friends. And it's like, oh. And, you know, I think I'm all of, I don't know, 23, something like that. But it was something. Oh, okay, thanks. Thanks for letting me run with that story. It's... <laughs> Oh, that's a good that's one. Awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's you know, a good one to, to to hear all those those kind of. I mean, they weren't. We didn't call them influencers back then, but certainly oh, to hear okay. about the kind I of. I guess the, that's a newer word. The huh? mutual. I guess maybe I don't know. Maybe it is. Or, well, they were what, actual. They were actual inventors, not like you know. Yeah, you weren't you know, dealing they, with the MBAs that are trying to sell like, things. This wasn't like you know they weren't telling people things. They were actually building things and right. You know, creating new things. Right you are. Amazing to hear these stories of the kind of the inception of the instrument and your introduction to the instrument. Um, something else I've always been kind of curious about is 
how you've moved from place to place and how you've kind of made music a part of your of your journey right and so you know in particular like when you moved to Hawaii you know was was like it, it felt like that really impacted your style and your playing and maybe you can tell us a little bit about that experience um, I'd be happy to. Well, let me put it this way. The Chapman stick for me has been an enduring passion my entire life. It's just intertwined with everything I've done since the day I met Emmett. So moving is just a geographical thing. The, the stick came with me because it's always been a part of me. And the different places that I've lived... Every single one has inspired me in different ways. The uh, six years living on Maui was probably one of my most creative uh, periods as far as recordings and compositions. But it, the stick just, it's in me, it's part of me, it's a, a passion that uh, I've just taken everywhere. It's just, you know, it's just intertwined with me. So. And. Really quick, how many albums have you recorded and released? Um, I know I've had more than 30 releases, but I, I forgot the number. Uh, probably wow. okay. probably about... All right. You can continue. That's just okay, what I yeah, needed to more hear. Than, more than 20 <laughs> albums. And, you know, I did, a, I did a couple of digital compilations. I did an in-concert video, things of that nature, but... There's been a bunch, and they've all been in different places. So Gene knows you, and I, I don't. Uh, and so I didn't realize that you had lived all these different places, and that, you know, it seems like every place was, you know, its own inspiration in its own unique way. I love Gene. We, we were friends the day we met, and I lived in Riverside, California, and back in the 80s, <laughs> we even wrote letters to one another. That's right. I, we That's were correspondents. Right. You mean you licked I, stamps? Wow. Yeah, we licked envelopes. And you even licked stamps back then. They, they hadn't come up with, you know, self-adhesive stamps. and Nobody thought I, of that, right? <laughs> I, I fondly recall the time that uh, Gene and I both attended a stick seminar it was held at one of the Chapman Colleges in Claremont, California, and this was the early 90s, I think 91, 92. The teachers were Alfonso Johnson, who I also love, and Frank, the late Frank Jolliffe, who passed away in 2012. And of course, Emmett. Oh, I, I can't see it. Is, was that from the... Oh, Gene's holding up a book. Oh, oh yeah. a Frank was, Jolliffe it's, it's book. It's a book by Frank Jolliffe. Frank was yeah. incredible. So it was the National Guitar Summer Workshop. Oh, okay. And Dale and I would rattle on about it because Dale would go to the East Coast version of the National Guitar Summer Workshop and she would come down from Canada to do it. And Frank was, you know, very, you know, enthusiastic and he played jazz on the Chapman stick. It was just amazing. Amazing to see him oh. play. And Mike, do you remember how he had this breathing pattern when he'd be playing and he'd be going... <laughs> Yeah, come to think of it. And he what, did this what, thing where he keep rhythm with like with his breath and it was so <laughs> yeah. unique and clever and I always remember that. 
And I just remember his left hand was free to do whatever it want. It would walk these lines and he would play these, you know, groovy melodies and, and, um, it's fascinating to see. And so, yeah, I remember, I think we might've been roommates. I think there was three years that I went and I'm pretty sure that you went to all three. And I remember that you and I both made an effort to, to perform at when they, when they did these kind of live performances and there were guitarists and bassists and electric guitarists and acoustic guitarists. And so, you know, when the Chapman stick player got up there, all the guitarists were just like, yeah, silence. You know, nobody what knew. Is that and all the stick players are like, you know, we're, we're rowdy in the back and we're all cheering for each other, you know. So it was just like, <laughs> these this, are like, my people. Like the, <laughs> exactly. It was like the caddies, the caddies and caddy shack, you know, <laughs> ramshackle bunch, you know. Frank Jolliffe was one of the only people that I've ever seen then or since who could sight read piano music for the stick. And I just remember to this day, he, he pulled out, okay, pick a piece of music. And we gave him uh, the, the musical song, send in the clowns. He puts it on the stand. He plays it note perfect on the stick with both hands, sight reading it. (laughs) Then he goes, all right, you want to hear it with a swing version? Plays the same song again, yeah. adds swing to it. Do, 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 do. Go and then play an A flat, you know, that's what I'm feeling. Then, he could probably just. <laughs> and then he goes, well, and now here's the reggae version. So he'd do it in all these different versions <laughs> just with the, the sheet music. That's so it, true. I've never that's seen so anything like it. was all like about it. the feel. He was all about the feel, man. Like he'd, he's like, I'm going to do it like a rumba. Want to do rumba? Yeah. Want to do rumba, you know? And, 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 yeah. And he would change the feel. Yeah, that was really cool. And, and it, I learned a lot in that. And that was actually the first time um, where I got to be around other stick players. And so that was, you know, you never forget that experience when you're with somebody else. And they're like, hey, you know, when the, the, the melody side does this weird thing. And they're like, yeah, yeah. It was like such a, a breakthrough to, to have someone to relate to. With, yeah, with someone that wasn't of, there that was going to say, Hey, is that a sitar? Yeah. <laughs> is that a dulcimer? Like, I actually, I, actually, I had somebody, I mean, I just, uh, if it didn't happen all the time, like it wouldn't be so funny, but like literally at my last gig, I had a gig out in Palm Springs and as somebody's walking by me with their drink, they're like, I'm pretty sure it's a sitar. And I just was like, just keep playing. Just, think, just, just to breathe, <laughs> breathe, keep playing. Just ignore them. They're trying to get your goat, you know. <laughs> um, it's not a sitar, but it is kind of f- fun how that that, that constantly a- emerges. You know, it, it's funny though because you know those people have never seen a sitar, right? Like, there's no way you'd you right. like if you've <laughs> seen a sitar, you know that's not a sitar. Is like, that a zither? And I thought for a moment <laughs> that I one I could see almost because it's have like you ever maybe seen like a a, if you're playing it. Sorry, I meant I, I actually meant dulcimer. You said dulcimer before, and like <laughs> well, I know it's hammered and all that stuff, but the physically a dulcimer could potentially look. I mean, yeah. with no body, I don't know. Okay, zither, no, definitely not. But and I asked yeah, the woman, "Have know. you ever seen a zither?" And she goes, "No." So thinking, <laughs> well, then. How the hell would you know whether <laughs> it's a zither or not? I, I don't even know what a zither looks like.
that recording? I was a latecomer. Um, I didn't start recording until I'd been playing 20 years before I started recording. I, I had a serious professional career in the two-way radio industry. I was a pro- professional salesperson. I had a young family, you know, several houses, the whole nine yards. I always played the stick on the side. Every month I'd do two or three um, you know, jobs. Just all small-time stuff, restaurants, coffee shops. Occasionally, I'd give a demo at a college. But so I didn't really get into recording in the 80s. I bought a, a TAC Porta Studio. You were able to record four tracks on a cassette. And so I did a lot of practice with that, but I really didn't think I had anything worth releasing. So, you know, I recorded... A hundred tapes on that thing. And it wasn't until I'd moved to Arizona in the early 90s that, that I met a professional recording engineer and producer, and he took a liking to the stick as well. And so he did some of my very first uh, recordings here in uh, Tempe, Arizona. And that those were my very first recordings. I put them out on a, a cassette. It was an audio cassette, and it had the <clears throat> name Stick stuff. Ooh, I wish I could have come up with something better, but that's what I had at the time. <laughs> that is pretty bad. Stuff. I'm not going to lie. You, you, you. Yeah, okay. I'm teasing. Just teasing. I could have come up with something better, but, you know, it is what it is, and it's all in the past now, and those are my very first recordings, and that would be in the mid-90s. I didn't even have an album of material to release until late 99. So it was right at Y2K that I released my very first CD. Oh, I've got to get this album out before we all die from Y2K. Oh, <laughs> before civilization collapses, I have to get this out. And yeah, no, I had some friends that were, you know, heavy into prepping and, you know, they're fully armed with complete preparations. And I think I saved three or four extra gallons of water was about it. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't think that uh, if computers <laughs> didn't know. see right. the day. Yeah, know. right. I don't know. But uh, that was the beginning of my recording career. I had recordings from several different places. I had recorded with a friend of mine in uh, Glen Ellen, California, and he did several recordings for me. And then uh, another friend gave me a mini disc. He said, here, take this home, figure it out. And I did. And I was living in a, a, a very small apartment in Sacramento, California, but I had a nice little rack. It had a mixer and EQ and a, a quadriverb and, you know, a few cool things. And I just hooked that all up to the mini disc and I didn't know how to edit. So what I did was I just played songs over and over, take after take, then I'd listen to them, and then I'd release the take that had the least number of mistakes. But nothing was ever perfect, and I finally came to the conclusion that imperfection is what makes things perfect. I mean, you know, there's so much this quantizing and digitizing and making everything squeaky perfect and I was never perfect I hear some of my early recordings sometimes and I'll cringe and I go oh god I should have taken that note out or oh I hear that string 
skrunk, things like that. But that's the way I did it. I I would just keep playing it over and over until I got what I thought was a decent take. And I did the same thing with the next, geez, I don't know, half dozen albums. After that, I bought an ADAT recorder. And I was able to operate it, but I still couldn't edit. So everything on the first six albums or so are all just one take, essentially. That's kind of cool. It is cool. It is. It it makes me wonder, like, you know, like, how do you, you know, for other players that want to record, you know, for other players that want to record the Chapman stick, you know, like what advice would you have for them? You know, like when you're doing the bass side or when you're doing the melody side, if there were techniques that you used as you kind of learned along the way, you know, where it's like, oh, I'm never going to do that again. We're working with different pickups. Like what, what kind of advice would you have for other players that are looking to do solo recordings? Well, I finally started using Pro Tools in 2008. After all these years of, you know, making one-off recordings and, I was really lucky. I was on Maui at the time, and I had some recordings that I wanted to finish, but I really didn't know how to do it. And I kid you not, I picked up the Maui Penny Saver, and I opened it up, and I found a little ad. Do you need help with your audio recording projects? Call Dave at 808 blah, blah, blah. And I called a guy named Dave Russell, and and I told him, well, I've got, you know, I've got some on mini disc, I got some on ADAT, I got another one that's on digital audio tape, and you know, I got all... He goes, yeah, come on down, just bring it all, I can help you with that. So I get there, and it, he's in a little garage behind his home in Paia, Hawaii, on Maui. So Hawaiian. <laughs> and I walk into the garage, and it's a complete recording studio. And then I look to my left and he's got a shelf and there's three Grammys on the shelf. I go, wow. Can, can, can I pick one up? I mean, they weigh like 20 pounds. These things are not small. It turns out <laughs> Dave had been the manager of um, Walter Becker's studio on Maui for over 10 years. And he had worked on projects uh, and the, the uh, Grammy Awards were for Record of the Year, Two Against Nature with by Steely Dan. And so this all started unraveling. So and, well, all of them. And, you know, uh, Walter, uh, I'm sorry, Donald Fagan's Kamakiriad, The Nightfly. Well, this guy had worked on all of these albums. He oh, worked yeah. with uh, Roger Nichols, wow. you know, one of the greatest producers ever. And we became friends, and I did six albums with him. Wow. You worked with the guy that did The Night Fly. It's like, oof. It's such a good well, recording. It's such a great well, album. Um, that, I mean, Walter, just, that's so Walter cool. Walter Becker had built um, a 24-track recording studio way on the outskirts in a place called Ulupalakula which is if you take the road in Maui and go all the way to the end, it's somewhere in the hills somewhere. And he had, he had built this studio with a man named John Neff, who I met many years later. And that's how that all happened. It's, it's another story I'll say for some other time. But I told Dave, I said, you know, I've been trying to record and, you know, I've been using these 
cheap Windows computers and they always crash and nothing working. He goes, you know, Mike, you're going to have to get a Mac. So I said, okay. So I went down. <laughs> so I went down to the Mac store in Kahului and I, you know, forked out 15, 1600 bucks and I bought a Mac. And then I said, well, what next? He goes, well, you know, Mike, you can't come into a professional studio with stuff from GarageBand. You're going to have to get Pro Tools. So I bought Pro Tools and the interface and all the stuff. And I just, he said, well, if you do that, bring it all over to me and I'll get you started. And so I took Pro Tools lessons with Dave Russell and he taught me all kinds of tricks of the trade. And that's how I started uh, doing my own recordings using the Pro Tools platform. I could finally edit. Oh, I could get rid of that bad note. I could take out the pregnant pause. It, it, it was it was liberating, but it, it took a lot of work. I found another fella by the name of Chris Thomas, and he also helped fill me in. He had produced uh, a lot of music for video games, and he was the drummer for one of the hottest acts on Maui at the time, a guy named Willie Kay. And we became good friends, and he helped me with the Suntan Lady album, which is one where I kind of went overboard with the tracks. I mean, it just got out of hand for me. I'm, I was used to doing everything four tracks, a couple of tracks for the uh, guitar synth and a couple of tracks for the stick, and that was about it. And, well, I just sort of went hog wild on Suntan Lady, and before I knew it, I had so many tracks. I didn't know if I was coming or going, and so I, uh, I hired Chris Thomas to give me more lessons on Pro Tools, and he helped me uh, mix that album, which was... <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to do that again, but it was fun. So th that's some of the stuff. As far as recording, nowadays, everything's done on computer. So get a Mac is my first, uh, first piece of advice. Windows machines, I don't know. I got nothing against Microsoft or Windows, but they just don't cut it for professional recording. You go into any pro studio and they're going to have Macs, I guarantee you. And, and, you know, find a, a digital audio workstation that you like. I'm still using Pro Tools 8 on the original computer that I bought in 08 because one of the pieces of advice that Dave gave to me goes, once you set up a platform and it's stable and you like it, don't upgrade it. Don't add on other software because it's just going to mess things up. And I... I followed his advice. One time I did add, I did update an operating system and it took everything out. Fortunately, I had it on a time capsule and two days later it was back to where it was. But if you got a stable platform on a computer, just leave it. Yeah. So uh, I'd like to, to, to uh, add to that. And that is that um, um, when I set up my small kind of reset up my YouTube studio, I, I took everything out. I took everything out and then I only started putting back in exactly what I needed. And I'd always wanted, always thought that I needed an external monitor. It's like, well, I have to have this larger monitor and I have to have this external keyboard. And, um, and right now I'm just working on a Mac. 
and, and, and it was that, it was that kind of undoing where you just have to burn it down to the ground and then just kind of rise from the ashes and, and have a, exactly like what this gentleman said, which is just like, if it works, d- like, don't be dis- distracted, right? Don't be distracted by these new things or these other things only work with what you've got. I was looking at the video I made last night and I was, I'm pulling the mic around with me cause I'm trying to look at, you know, I made a video just last night, a, a free hands Friday and I was trying to work with the, with the pedal board. And I was pulling the mic in all these different directions as I was like going back and forth from sitting and stuff like that. And I was like, you know what? That's my jam. Like that works for me and that works and, and, and I'm not going to change it. And so I think that that has more to do with actual, the actual creation of music and not the configuration of things that make music. And we are, I am easily distracted in that regards. Right. Um, so great advice. That's, I really, that speaks to me and I could feel that and hear that. If I can interrupt with a question, is this basically because sticking with what you know, you can actually spend your time creating instead of trying to keep up with the next revision or the next feature set or the next user interface or whatever. Is that what we're dealing with here? Partly. It's, it's also because like once it's working, it works. And, and the, the piece about just keeping what you need is that when you add more things, it becomes less stable overall. Like they start to affect each other on your system. And then every time you update, you're introducing a new, like, you know, if you have Pro Tools, you probably have plugins. Um, or if, if you have any DAW, you probably have plugins. You probably have third-party plugins. So you're, you're dealing now with, like, you have your system, you have your DAW, you have your plugins. If you're adding everything else on that, like your, you know, your finance software, your browsers, you're like, they all start to interact with or that video <laughs> and anything like it's just, yeah. yeah so I, yeah, pro pro audio places, they'll run pro audio software and that's it on those stations. Like that's it. And they don't update for like a long until they absolutely have to basically. <laughs> so, or also when we, when you, when you talk about updating and stuff, I mean, you, you're sticking with that operating system, then you're not updating the operating. You, you, you might be using Windows three, you know, uh, from back in the nineties or whatever. Uh, I'm, I'm being a little bit overboard on that, but, but yeah, I mean, Apple right now is it, like, it, you're talking about Apple. They they've switched to updating their O's every year. It's like impossible. It's actually impossible to keep up with that. If you're you know, using audio software, the manufacturers don't keep up with that. So you can't actually, if you update, like when they update their OS, half your software isn't going to work for a while. That's yeah, exactly in the, in the, right. in the music software world. Because <laughs> they have to catch up. One of the things Dave taught me goes, Mike, less is more. Don't go down the path where you got to add this and that, and that. And he told me about some, you know, Steely Dan recordings. Everything they did was recorded dry. And they would make, oh, just so many passes. I asked him to tell me, well, what was, you know, what was one of the craziest things you did? He goes, I spent literally a month nonstop comping a single guitar solo for Walter on that album, Two Against Nature. I mean, like eight hours a day comping a solo. I mean, he's got, you know, 20 takes of Walter playing. It's all dry. And Picking this note and that note and this, it's like surgery. But my advice is less is more. It's always it's spend more time with your instrument and less time with the effects. 
and you're going to get a lot better recordings. You can always add. It's easy to add stuff. Matter of fact, our tendency as human beings is to add, 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 add. And then all of a sudden one day we go, wow, we got to take this all away and start over. Just like Gene said, it's like, it's like cleaning out your garage. You got to pull everything out, put it, yeah, put it in the driveway, clear it out and look and go, you know, I don't need this, 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 this. I don't need that, 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 that. And then what's left, you can put it back in nice and organized. Suddenly you have new space, capacity to do stuff. But my advice is always less is more. I have never owned a single pedal board. And I wish I had, because there's just times when I, I wish I could do all that cool stuff. You know, I've got some effects and I've got a big box in the closet here with every effect pedal I've ever purchased in my life. And sometimes I'll pull them out for recording. But when, you know, when I play, play out, I don't use any effects at all. No pedals. I just use a little bit of oh, delay. Gene on, is going into contortions right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just use a little bit of delay <laughs> the on the, the amplifiers. Um, I don't know, maybe... Gene, you can help me build a pedal board. You know, something nice and easy. Oh, Gene is, Gene is Mr. Sure. Pedal Board. I've known oh, okay. Gene for well, what now, probably know, 10 love, years, I and you've been effects. through like five different configurations on your pedal board at least. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing a little yeah. bit on Temple Audio boards these days. So, um, but it is, it is, it is reassuring to, to hear um, that, or be reminded, certainly with an instrument like the Chapman stick, that less is more. Just now, Mike was showing us his iMac. It's an iMac from from 2008, and and and, and I believed you. But I, I mean, when I saw it, you know, like the the 24 inch uh, iMac, it, it it definitely took me back. And so, definitely, uh, Mike Colwitz walks the walk, talks the talk. <laughs> if it works, you know, if it works, just keep on making it work. Um, if it ain't broke, also don't fix a, it. A great story, Claire. I, if I wish, I wish we could have heard. Don't go there. You know. No. Okay. Don't go I there. <laughs> the things that we go through to get technology to work. You know, what does it take? You know, sometimes you just have to take it down a notch. Um. So one of the things that that is it is unique. It's kind of a new form for you. Is that you're you're releasing not more music, but you're releasing a book, Mike. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, thanks. Well, after Emmett passed, I was devastated. I really was. And for months, I was just thinking, oh, how could you do that to 
you know, I expected Emmett to, you know, last in the 90s. I, I figured he'd reach 100. And, but it didn't work out that way. And for many months, I kept thinking, you know, I think Emmett would want me to tell my story. Well, story, whatever it is, I think he'd want me to tell it. So I had started a manuscript about four years ago, and I had shelved it. And so I pulled it out this past summer, and I just went out it with a so now, 14 drafts later, it is a book. It's all the chapters of my life starting over. Oh, I've started over so many times. I moved from Southern California to Phoenix. Start over. Good in Phoenix. Then I had a divorce. Lost everything. I was on the street. Didn't have a car. I'm pushing my instrument and an amplifier in a shopping cart to catch a bus dressed in a tuxedo in 110 degree Phoenix heat. It was, it was brutal. And then from there, I moved to Reno, Nevada, start over again. Then my ex-wife moved the kids one more time. So now I moved to Sacramento. From Sacramento, I ended up going to Maui. Six years there, I came back to Lake Tahoe, start over again. From Lake Tahoe down to Rancho Mirage, Palm Springs. Last time I saw you, Gene. And then from there to Sedona. So there's a lot of stories. And it's like I said in the beginning of this interview, the stick is part of my life. So it's always intertwined in the story. I tell the story of how I had to restart every single time and uh, all of the adventures along the way. I've met some real characters. There are some great stories in that book. And, oh, some of the gigs and festivals I've done, I, I look back now and I think, I did that? What was I thinking? <laughs> but, so that's what it is. I, I, the first chapter of the book is my first day, the story of, of uh, going to Emmett's house. And then... There's a chapter about kind of my early life, uh, where I came from, what I did. And then from there, it just starts up with me as a stick player and goes all the way up until basically December of last year. I signed the I finished the introduction on December 29th of last year, which was my 46th anniversary as a stick player. Um, I was super, super fortunate. Jim Riley wrote a beautiful foreword and he encouraged me along the way. Thank you, Jim, if you're listening. And also Diana uh, Chapman wrote a, another beautiful foreword for the book. And you know, going back all those years, when I first met Diana and Grace, well, I was 19 and Diana's basically about the same age as me. Grace is a few years younger, but so I've known them for you know, all these years. But that's kind of where it came up with the book. I, I had always liked writing. I was the editor of my high school newspaper, and I put out a little uh, paper in elementary school even. But I never took journalism or went to writing classes. I, I, I never even attended college. So it was, uh, it was a real challenge to write the story and just keep going through it until it was good. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So you know something that uh, I'm only speaking for myself here. So you're not 
you're not active really uh, on on the Stickus forum. Uh, and, you know, I've heard of you, I've got some of your music, you know, I bought your Christmas CD and, and, Thank you. and I've heard your name bandied about, but this is like the first time I'm actually learning anything of substance about you is, is during this, this recording session. And I had no clue you were writing a book. When Bob Culbertson was doing his coffee table book, I knew that was coming. When, you know, when Jim Riley was writing, I think it was Jim Riley that wrote, that wrote uh, uh, Emmett's uh, you know, Stickman, uh, right. you know, I knew about that, you know, and you know, I knew about all these things. And, and you know, and I, it, it, was, it was really interesting. When I found out about your book, it just came, it, it just came out of the clear blue sky out of nowhere. And, uh, you know, that's, yeah, there we go. Yeah. Yeah. The, the he's holding up stick man, uh, which I've, you know, most, I think all of us probably have it on our bookshelf. And if you're a stick player and you haven't read stick man, you should buy it immediately. You got to know this man's history. It's just one of the most amazing people I have ever met in my life. And for sure. Well, the, the book tells all kinds of stuff that most people have no idea most people have no idea. I've had many brushes with UFOs during my life. I was in professional sales for uh, 20 years in the two-way radio industry. I'm also a ham radio operator. Ta-da! <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm also a pilot. I've been flying since I was a kid. My uncle took me up in a Piper Cub when I was about 10 or 11 years old, and I, I got the aviation bug. Wow. Oh, wow. Which is probably not a bad thing out in Arizona, right? You got to. Oh, we got so many beautiful places to go here. It's just yeah. no way you can see it all. Do you, do you see our mate Steve Adelson about there? Um, yeah, I saw Steve about, about a year ago. I, he came up to Sedona, and I had uh, dinner with him. Now, doesn't he live out there now? Uh, he lives down in the Phoenix area. In the Phoenix area. Okay. I'm two hours north in Sedona, which is, gotcha. it's absolutely gorgeous. It's red rock country. They say God made the Grand Canyon, but he lives in Sedona. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I lived in Scottsdale for many years. In the early 90s, when I first left California, um, I moved uh, myself and my young family to Scottsdale, Arizona. And I lived in Scottsdale for most of the 90s. And it was a, it was a super creative period. So you've got Arizona pretty much covered, it sounds like. I love this state. It's great. Uh, you know, I love California, too. Um, but uh, Arizona's home at the moment, so... We'll, we'll see where the future takes us, but this is this is as good as it gets for me right now. I always wanted to live here. It was one of the places that I found um, during my days in uh, professional sales. My territory was the state of Arizona, and I'll never forget the day I came over the mountain and saw Sedona for the first time. I wanted to stop my car in the middle of the road and get out and say, oh, my God, but it, it's still... Still makes me feel that way now. It's probably a great place for a solo performer because I expect that you'd be having a lot of opportunities for tourists that are in the area and also well-funded tourists that are in the area. You're right on all counts, Gene. <laughs> 
Yeah. So that's, that's, that's been my experience living in wine country out in Temecula is that there is kind of a, a want and a need for, for live music. And I think that, you know, and Mike and I have gigged together on two occasions as a duet that plays live, you know, Chapman stick duets. And, you know, to us, we actually talked to the promoter. We're like, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. You need him or me. You know, it's like, you don't want us both at the same time. Like, no, the, the client is specifically asked for, yep, two Chapman stick, stick players. Player. And it was like, oh. and we were like, cool, let's do it. We get a hangout. So Mike came over, you know, we hung out in my garage and we practiced for a little bit. And then yeah, we did it, it again fun. a few years later. And it was, it was cool. It was a cool gig. And at some point, I think we both agreed. We're like, you want to do one? You know, like, why don't, why do you do one on your own? Because it, it is, it is a big responsibility playing with another Chapman stick player. You know, you, you know, there'll be moments where you look up, it's like, are you going to, you're going to do that. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, don't stop. You keep doing what you're doing. And I'm going to work around that. You know, you just have to have kind of like a ringleader on one of the songs, you know, like, Norwegian wood. We can't go wrong with that. I, I still remember to this day. That. Yeah. Isn't it good? One, one of the, uh, the, the gigs that Gene and I did was held in Dana Point, and we had no idea who the clients were or what the event was. So we drive up to the resort, and there's like a throng of secret service agents. Yep. They want to know everything about us, who we are, what we're doing here. And uh, they're getting on their walkie-talkies and their phones. Are these guys okay? Are these guys okay? I'm I'm looking at Gene going, what the hell is this? The Secret Service? What have you gotten me into? Exactly. I was like, man, you got a gig with Mike Kolwitz because he plays these crazy gigs. (laughs) I thought you'd do this every weekend. I was like, damn. (laughs) Well, I've done some crazy ones, but that that was always stands out. Well, it turns out the attendees at this event were uh, governors, um, you know, top politico types. And this is a... This is a five-star resort, uh, you know, where they have filet mignon for breakfast and you know caviar for a snack, and uh, it was it was it was a great great gig, I tell you. And Gene and I are looking at each other the whole time, going, "Is this okay? Are we doing okay?" This is crazy. We, we were feeling, I call it imposter syndrome. We're thinking like a little wow, bit maybe. It was what was really weird was is enough. that we were kind of <laughs> escorted in. We were escorted in by our, by our agent and then we were escorted out. So it was, it was really was, it was like truly one of those kind of court musician kind of experiences where it's like, sure, you get to be here. Sure. You get to look at all this stuff, but it's like, you're here to perform. And then when you're done performing, we're just going to. Can't have the riffraff mingling, you know. Exactly. The agent kept telling us, don't worry guys. It's just another gig. Don't worry guys. It's just another gig. Just play. So That's here's a question did. for you then. <laughs> when you found out, uh, you know, who the audience was, did you change your set list at all? No, no, we did not. Okay. All right. I only know like four songs, five songs. <laughs> <laughs> I've had so many odd gigs. I remember one when I was living on Maui and the agent hired me to go play on the island of Lanai, which means I'd have to take a ferry. It takes about an hour to get there. And there, were, at the time, there were only two resorts on the island, and they were both Four Seasons. So I get there, and there's a buzz going on. 
at this resort? I have no idea. And I say, well, we're, I'm thinking I'm playing for a cocktail party on a golf course. You know, easy gig. Well, they say, well, go over there and we need you to set up on the stage. They've erected this huge stage. Oh, and they have buildings everywhere, these uh, special buildings that they built just for this event. And there's just people buzzing everywhere. Well, I get up on the stage. And here's a rack with about 10 guitars, these stack of keyboards set up, drum set. I'm going, well, there's some other band or something playing here. They go, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry. Just set up and uh, we'll tell you when to play. Okay, so, well, I played on the stage, and it turns out I was the opening act for the Goo Goo Dolls. And I thought I was playing at a, you know, for a, a cocktail reception on a golf course. Well, it turns out the client was Cisco. And at the time, the CEO of Cisco, his favorite band was the Goo Goo Dolls. So, of course, he just, you know, hired the Goo Goo Dolls in. And I just, uh, you know, did a little set of stick music before <laughs> I had no idea. And uh, later that night, I had my first, I think, $20 cheeseburger, and I was forced to stay the night in the Four <laughs> Seasons. Oh, darn. What a get nice. I hate it when that happens. And then the next day, uh, I was on the ferry with the Goo Goo Dolls, and we're going back to Maui. But you know, Stuff like that happened. Another time, I got flown to Oahu. They wanted me to play at the Sheraton Waikiki, which had just been remodeled. They'd spent millions and taken years, and they had invited everyone from all over. They wanted me to sign a, a an accident waiver. It turns out they wanted me to play perched on the second story outside the window. And I go, there's no way I'm signing that thing. When I get there, and it turns out there's enough room and they've already got a sound system. So what I'm doing is I'm serenading the people who are a, a story below me. And they've got water dancers and light shows and lasers. And, and there's this infinity pool that uh, the water goes over onto the Waikiki boardwalk. And it's just like so crazy, man. So here I'm up there perched playing the stick for all of these uh um, hospitality executives from around the world. But anyway, there's dozens more and they're, they're all in the book. I wrote them all out and I, there was just so many of them. I, I had to just stick to the best ones and maybe I'll, maybe I'll write a sequel. Who knows? But And what is the book called? The book is called stick with it. And the subtitle is adventures of a Chapman stick player. Stick with it. So okay. perfect. Stick with it by Michael Kollwitz. That's K-O-L-L-W-I-T-Z. Hey, everyone. It's been a number of weeks since the recording session for this episode, and Michael recently gave me an update on the book launch date, so I wanted to break in here and pass it along. The official release date for Stick With It is April 15th. Additionally, there's going to be a discounted price for one week after its release, ending on April 22nd, so go get it! Now with that, back to the conversation. Now there's three editions. There's a, an E-edition, and then there's a color and or black and white paper book, and it's got 47 photos. As a matter of fact, there you are, Gene. Do you remember this photo? 
There it is. I do that remember. was us so at my, the seminar. That's Mike holding up a picture of us in 1990, I believe. And so yeah, in that picture, it. you'll see Frank Joliffe and Alfonso Johnson. And that was, that was my first seminar. Yeah. I had yep, these like stupid shorts on that have like, yes, day glow shorts. Yeah. Oh, and your hair was kind of cool. Embarrassing. You looked like a <laughs> rock star, Gene. Look at that. There he is. I was a rock star. <laughs> you were. The incline. <laughs> that, that was the stage of, of my life where California. I was actually in a rock and roll band and touring and playing in a rock and roll band. Um, so Mike, listen, we're, we're coming up on the, on our time and, and it's been so good to, to hear these stories and to hear where you've been and where you're going with it. And I suppose I always think of what I would tell a Chapman stick player, you know, what I, if, if, if there was something that I knew, you know, from the beginning, and even though I think I've already heard like three things that are like prime candidates for that, I might, we might want to hear you tell us what it, you know, you would recommend for young players. Number one, read the book, stick man, learn about Emmett's life. Emmett Chapman was just the most amazing. I'm, I'm even getting choked up just thinking about him because I miss him so much. Learn about Emmett's life and realize how lucky you are. There are millions of people out there that wish they could play the stick. If you're playing the stick, you're a part of a tiny group of super, super lucky people. So just remember how good you are. And, you know, don't worry about, you know, how good this guy is or that guy. Just do your thing. Be passionate about it. And make it do what you want it to do. The stick is like a blank canvas. There's, it's the most expressive musical instrument ever devised by man. And we're all lucky to be part of that legacy. Emmett left a legacy, and it's our job to keep that legacy going and take the stick any place and play it anywhere. Tell anyone about it. And just remember how lucky you are to be a stick player. I mean, that's always the way I felt in my heart. You know, even on my worst days, I always thought, you know, gee, I'm so lucky to know this guy and to play this incredible instrument that he invented. And I've just always felt such a debt of gratitude to Emmett. And that's the reason I wrote this book. I wanted to tell the story of the early history from the perspective of a student. So other stick players would, you know, kind of get a feel for that. But that's that's what I would tell you. If you're a stick player, you are one lucky person and never forget it. And we'll always have our gratitude to Emmett for making this instrument. And let's do everything we can to help Grace continue after she's yeah. taken over the reins of stick enterprise. It's really, really important. We've got to keep the stick in the world. And yeah. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> there is a, a shared, kind of a shared vision, and, and I think all these stick players kind of feel it, and that kind of um, closeness or that bond with the instrument, and it means something different to lots of different people. And it is a source of faith. It is a source of, like, companionship. Um, and music, of course, kind of at the core of all of it. But I, I do recall Emmett saying in so many words, like, he's like, I didn't, I didn't think it would look like this. You know, like, I didn't, like, in terms of like the community, he's like, oh, that just kind of happened. You know, and that was just like, he didn't mind a little chaos. And so the fact that he 
you know, what he was doing appealed to you, appealed to me and, 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 and all of us was something that is a, is, is now a shared vision. And it's, it's, it's very much more real now. It's got some legs and you know it's kind of proliferated out into the world. And it's so beautiful to hear you say it because I can tell it means so much to you. I can tell it like playing the instrument, having the instrument. And it's so perfect that it was you, Mike Kolowitz, because, because I know that you just, you, you'd be doing it anyways. <laughs> yeah. You'd be playing music and yeah, just doing it anyways. The stick. Well, think of it this way. Here you have. Well, the, the very first musical instruments were bone flutes 4,000 years ago. And here's the stick. It's a baby. It's an infant in the musical instrument world at only 49 years old. Well, just round it up to 50 because, you know, Emmett did start. You know, Emmett was such an innovator. Here you've got the guitar. It's been pretty much played the same for about 500 years. Okay, someone electrified it. Now it can be loud. But it's still basically the guitar. And along, <laughs> along comes Emmett, and he's thinking, well, what if I could play this thing like a piano? Because he loved jazz piano players, and he loved the intricate compositions yeah. that they could do, but he loved the expression of a guitar, and he was a guitarist. So he think, what if I could do that? And lo and behold, that's how the stick came to be. It was just, uh, yeah. it was simple. It was kind of a aha eureka moment. Like, whoa, uh, this works. It doesn't work the way I want yet. But, and then Emmett spent the rest of his life refining the technique, refining the instruments, making them so that they were just so playable. You just, you just breathe on the thing and you get a note out of it. It's just incredible. Uh, one of the things that I did in the beginning was, you know, here I'm this young kid, and I was like, bang, 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 bang on the stick. And he goes, no, no. He goes, Mike, go home and turn up your amplifiers as loud as you can possibly stand it. That's going to teach you to tap softer. And after several visits from the local police about volume, <laughs> I did start tapping softer. <laughs> I had a neurotic next-door neighbor who really didn't appreciate my music one bit. Well, listen, Mike. Uh, we are at time, and I, and I, I'm I'm so glad uh, that you made time for us this weekend. It's it's uh, it's been really good to finally get caught up and to hear your story. And I'm I'm looking forward to reading all about it and sticking with it. And uh, thanks so much for for sharing your experience. If you're playing, just stick with it. <laughs> it's so nice yeah. to meet you, Victor and Claire, both. Um, I really enjoyed the time and uh, nice yeah, to we, meet you we, as well. Thanks for joining yeah, us today. To, we could go on and yeah. on and on, but a lot of the stories <laughs> that I couldn't tell are in there and there's a whole bunch more because nobody wants to read a, you know, 200,000 word book. So <laughs> I had to make it shorter. Anyway, thanks a lot. I enjoyed every minute. It was great. Yeah. Yeah, Michael, thanks for joining us and, uh, and to our My audience out there that's listening. We appreciate you guys coming along also. And we hope that sometime in the next 24 hours, you get a chance to pick up your instrument and play for a while. Goodbye. Bye. Bye now. Stick with it. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thank you.
your comments. You can contact us by email at tapintimepodcasts at gmail.com. Podcast? <laughs> <laughs>